Hi, welcome to Fighting to Win, the series where we share real stories from the front lines of the environmental justice movement. We're the Center for Health, Environment, and Justice, and we support activists around the country who are fighting against toxic chemical pollution in their communities. Most of them are everyday people who discovered toxics threatening their neighborhoods and decided to create the change that they need. Here at CHEJ, we connect communities to each other. So when COVID-19 hit, we launched a webinar series to bring organizers, activists, and community leaders together despite the distance. These conversations have been rich and inspiring, and now we want to share them with you as a reminder that we are together in this fight. And not just that, but we are fighting to win. Subscribe to Fighting to Win now, wherever you listen to podcasts. And thank you for being with us. an incredible guest with us today, um, Ms. Nina Morgan uh, from Birmingham, Alabama. And she is a community organizer um, who works with like one of the very elite um, polluter busting groups and does it in a really, really hard place. Um, and the group is called GASP, shout out to them. They just had a, a pretty big uh, settlement victory, but they are really um, doing difficult and great work of organizing, getting through the pandemic and um, making people's lives better. So uh, Nina, welcome. It's great to have you on. Hi, um, thanks for having me. That's awesome. So tell, so tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, um, so I, I am, you know, good old Southern girl, born and raised in Alabama, um, being here all my life. Um, family is from Alabama, um, and uh, I was actually born in Birmingham, but for a good bit of my life, I was, I was raised um, in, a, in a very rural area uh, of the state. Um, that's about, you know, 45 to 50-ish minutes away. Um, from the city uh, called Sipsy, and so Sipsy is is uh, the place that I that I call home um, at at the core, and that is a town of about 500 people, real small, um, my historic mining community, like like so many across the region, um, and it's it's it sits right on the uh, Mulberry Creek, which is um, a, a a tributary to the Black Warrior River. And um, you know, it's it's uh, land that that used to be um, you know stewarded and and by the by the, uh, the Muscogee Creek uh, people. So that's where I'm from. Sipsy is Cherokee for um, uh, I think poplar tree, and uh, you know, a lot of my favorite memories um, of home are climbing trees and like you know scaring my mom by like. Uh, her coming outside and like looking up and finding me in like the, the highest branches of a tree, like reading a book and, and playing, playing on like uh, unused mining land because Sipsy uh, is nestled right up against uh, the Burton Man um, coal mine, it's a surface mine. And so um, they've kind of like, uh, there's been like a flux and flow of like, operations. But when I was little, the mine had kind of, uh, the land had gone fallow in some parts that were closer to the community. And so I used to actually play, um, you know, uh, on, on that land. And we used to go back to this place that we called the spot. 
and um, they had like field, they filled up the ponds from, from the different blasts and, and threw fish in there. And so over time it kind of like naturalized. And so people used to go back there and fish and stuff. Um, and since then those ponds have been drained and, and the operations have resumed. But, but yeah, I have vivid, vivid memories of like feeling the blast of the mine, um, seeing like, you know, the way it affects housing because um, we lived with my granny at the time. And so um, the panels on her roof would like fall. Um, and, and yeah, so like, um, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a climate and environmental justice organizer for the Greater Birmingham Alliance to Stop Pollution. Um, and the issues that we work on um, are very, very personal to me. And, and one of the ways is because I grew up in, um, you know, what we know as impacted, uh, impacted community. Um, and, and so I hold that close in, in my heart and, and the work is, is it, it comes from um, that, that personal experience. And, uh, and it's been a journey just like doing the work now and, and looking back and using um, the experiences to, to, for, to form more of an, an analysis around my memories of, of, of childhood. Um, uh, really quick, I graduated. So, so like everybody, um, not everybody, but like a lot of people who grew up in a small town, I wanted to get the hell out and uh, go to the, I went to the nearest biggest city, you know, that's, that's was affordable and still in the state. And that was Birmingham um, at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. And I graduated with uh, degrees in anthropology and sociology, went on, you know, different, different pathways and journeys of doing work uh, with AmeriCorps VISTA, um, you know, working at the Nature Conservancy as a conservation intern, um, you know, working at the city of Birmingham in the Department of Planning, and was fortunate to land um, a, a job at GASP, um, you know, working, at, working as an organizer. So um, I'm, I'm 26 years old and um, really, really grateful for, for the opportunities to try to make um, you know, the greater Birmingham area and, and more broadly the state of Alabama a better place to live for, for everyone. Oh, for sure. I think, and clearly you are doing that. I, can I go back? to uh, you like hearing the explosions from the mine or feeling that, uh, explain to people what that's like, because I don't think everybody here really gets. So in one way or another, we're all affected by, I think, corporate greed in different ways, like, like it or not, if you're taking a breath in this country in 2021, you're affected by it. But the real issue and that we have to remind people is that not everybody's affected the same. Um, so what, what's that feel like? And what are they mining for, by the way? You're mining, mining for coal. Um, yeah, and I don't know, like as a kid feeling that, um, it was like kind of like exciting because like you're a kid and the ground is shaking and there's just like something that's cool about that. Um, but it was also like kind of creepy and it made me kind of sad because, you know, like it affected the foundation of like the house that my, my, that was, you know, my, in our family for generations and generations. And, you know, um, my mom was a single mom and, you know, my grandmother was, uh, I think in her like 
mid 60s at that point, but she was still working. And so like the stress of trying to just survive and then like, like having to, um, you know, deal with your house being basically shaken to the ground was was very stressful. So there was like that sadness of seeing your family like struggle to make it throughout the day and um, get like having that other layer of stress being added on by like, you know, basically living in inadequate housing that's just being made worse by by um, the mine. And and interestingly enough too, the Burton Bend mine is owned by um, by McWayne uh, McWayne Inc. I think. Um, and McWayne, uh, you know, had, they they own a, a science center in downtown Birmingham that I, you know, used to go on field trips to as a child. And it wasn't until I got uh, in college that I made that connection between like McWayne, the McWayne Science Center, um, you know, being owned by the same folks who own the surface mine, like in my community back in Sipsi. So, yeah. Oh yeah. You know, it's funny in Brazil where I'm from, it used to be that the, uh, the oil and gas company, they sponsored a whole bunch of movies, right? And a whole bunch of uh, cultural things like music and shows. And they always put their logo on that stuff. And I remember thinking as a kid, I was like, wow, so they make gasoline and they make movies. That's amazing, right? Um, you know, um, when did you first get an inkling that there was something wrong? It, was there like a particular moment or when did you realize that like, hey, we're in trouble here? My family talked about it. So it wasn't like, I mean, we all, I always knew that there was at, fundamentally at some level something wrong um, in the community because, you know, people like my granny, my mom, my uncle, um, you know, neighbors, they, they complain about it. They talk about, you know, we, I'd be sitting on the front porch with my granny and her neighbor, like, Taff would come up the street and, and they'd be talking on the porch. And so I'd sit and listen to them complain about the mine, um, amongst other things. So that, that was probably just hearing conversations. Like what um, kind of stuff would they say? Well, they would say stuff like, you know, uh, that blast, you know, is, is, is doing stuff to my house. And, you know, my granny would ask Tack, his, his, yeah, his nickname is Tack, T-A-C. She would ask him, um, if, she, if he knows anybody who could help her with their roof because another panel has fallen down and, and, and that kind of thing. And, um, you know, my, my, my grandmother had a friend who has since passed away. Her name was Miss Taddy. She was very mean, and, but she, she was very mean. And one of those old ladies who knew everything about the community because all she did all day was sit on the porch and like look at what other people were doing. And, um, but her and Miss Taddy would talk and, uh, they complain about the water. You know, no one in Sipsi drinks water from the tap. Everybody drinks bottled water because there's like that that folklore that you know the the mine has in, in, impacted the groundwater in a bad way, and it's not safe to drink it. So people just don't drink the groundwater because um, they, they don't trust it. Whether or not that's true, um, you know, but 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 that's kind of like the sense uh, in the community. So. Yeah. Also, it's it's worth mentioning that um, unless people have kind of gone through the procedures to get their their paperwork and stuff correct, folks in Sipsi have a 100 year leases to their homes because it started 
um, as a as a mining camp for the Bartlebone Coal Coal Company. Um, so, you know, the workers kind of got recruited, you know, got set up in the worker camps, and they they actually got like 100 year leases. And over time, people just settled there. But there's folks in the community, including my grandmother, who still have like that kind of those that paperwork that says like 100 year lease with the Bartlebone Coal Company and so on and so forth. Um, which is which is interesting. Folks don't own the mineral rights. Um, they 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 might own kind of like the homes and stuff, but they don't own like the mineral rights to the property. Interesting. So, so they pay. They've paid for their homes, but don't really own them. They're long term renters. What you're saying? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And this in in Sipsi is a it's it you know it's segregated. So there was a when the work camp uh, got settled, there was like the white camp. And then there was the black camp and people still use that language today. So, you know, you go and folks are talking about buying some greens from, you know, Mike up the road and, you know, they'll say, yeah, I went over in the white camp and got me some collards from so-and-so. And And like that culture, even though people like have integrated in some ways, that culture of racial segregation still very much exists. And, um, you know, you can tell just by the quality of the houses in the black camp versus in the white camp. You know, in that same way, I know like folks maybe who have seen Princess and the Frog, there's like that racial segregation of like, you know, where the black people lived and the white people. Yeah, it's it's everywhere. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So what's it like um, fast forwarding to today, right? So you decide you're gonna be an organizer and you're gonna work on environmental justice issues. And then things like you just what you're watching TV, you're seeing Ferguson, you're seeing uh, an uprising in Baltimore, you're seeing George Floyd. Like, how does that play into the work? Like, if I have it right anyway, like I don't I don't know what came first for you, but when did you decide to really become an organizer and do this work? But also, like, how does what's happening in America today with, you know, police brutality videos being shown on TV and people correctly like rising up and organizing, how does that affect your environmental work? Um, so I, as a young person, um, I did get politicized um, by the, the, mur- the murder of, um, you know, uh, Trayvon Martin, Mike Brown. Um, when I was a student in, in, in college, I uh, was, you know, one of those people who were super involved on campus um, in all the student groups. I originally went to UAB because I thought I wanted to be a cardiologist. That quickly changed. Um, not because I don't like science either, but because it just wasn't um, a field that really spoke to me. Um, I, I've always been raised like with somewhat of a political consciousness. So uh, because because of who my parents are. So um, I was involved in the Black Student Awareness Committee, um, you know, at, in college. And uh, we kind of started doing rallies and doing more campus organizing stuff. Um, and then, yeah, I got encouraged to join the, the Alabama Alliance for Healthy Youth, which was pushing for um, comprehensive sex, sex education in Alabama. Um, and that was funded by Advocates for Youth, you know, the national organization. And that was re- when I really kind of like moved into more, more of like this um, 
like deeper analysis about like systemic racism and oppression and you know um, being around young people who were doing amazing work in their communities and who also had like a very sharp analysis of like why um, you know uh, injustice exists why um, certain communities are being marginalized really pushed me to think a little bit deeper about my own background and what was happening in the city of Birmingham. And so uh, from that point, you know, I was involved in a lot of different things. Um, I think I really got more, I moved away from campus organizing to, to grassroots like community organizing um, when I when I got involved in Black Lives Matter. So uh, the Bir Birmingham has a, has a BLM uh, Birmingham chapter. And I was like, I had to be like 19 or 20 at the time. And I was involved, I was like in, in rooms and spaces with other organizers who were much older than me um, and uh, more radical than me and kind of put me on game to a lot of different things happening in the community and hipping me to like what it really means to be a grassroots organizer at the community level. It kind of put me on that trajectory of where I am today. Um, you know, cause it's kind of been history ever since, you know, I just kept showing up, kept building relationships, kept getting involved, kept, kept surrounding myself, um, as a young person around other people who like knew more than me. Yeah. Developed a kind of a community of folks. And, um, I was also, so a lot of things happened in parallel because I was also working for, um, the office of sustainability at, at, at my college at UAB. And um, that kind of, you know, working in an office of sustainability, getting experience in like what it means, what municipal, like, yeah, sustainability means for like big institutions, like a university, like a local government, that kind of thing. And connecting that to other, um, you know, things I was learning in like my environmental science class about, you know, the fact that we waste almost 50% of the food that we produce and, and, and that, um, there's, there's communities that are, you know, disproportionately impacted by, uh, the externalities of extractive industries, you know, learning more deeply about climate change. That kind of like was another layer of analysis that, that was happening at the same time. I've always been a person that cared about the planet. My, my mom and my dad really care about the planet. I've always been someone who's into gardening and, and living off the land. And so I think but because of all of that put together, I, I moved more in the direction of environmental um, justice as opposed to like reproductive justice. Yeah, so you, um, you know, I'm identifying with you so much because in, um, in Rio, like one of the first memories I have is uh, a huge conference called Rio 92. And some of the old folks, older folks on this call will remember Rio 92. But the thing that always seemed crazy is that there was a lot of like, you know, trees and greens and parks and animals and dolphins and whales. But at the same time, like if you, you know, you just look up in Rio and you see like housing, the favelas, uh, you know, you just see people housed in horrible conditions, right? Without running water, without just basic needs. And that 
is not on the brochure. It's just people like dying every day and paying the price for the environmental devastation and, you know, not having enough to eat when, like you said, like we produce so much food in this country and in this world that there's no excuse for that. How do you explain over and over again? Yes, like black people in America have to pay a bigger share of the price, like immigrants in America pay a bigger share of the price for how pollution gets distributed, for how waste gets distributed. Like how do we how do we just explain that to folks? It doesn't seem like that's necessarily gotten out. I can only speak from my my own experience. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of where I start is by sharing my story about how my community has been impacted, um, sharing the story of, of North Birmingham, um, of the 35th Avenue Superfund site, and the fact that, you know, there's people who literally live right across the street from you know, a coke plant breathing in toxic air while, you know, a couple of miles up the road um, over the mountain, as we say, uh, in the greater Birmingham area, there's people who just don't have to deal with that. And, you know, there's, there's a relationship between, you know, the, how much money people make. So, um, yeah, I just telling the stories is really, uh, I think, one of the most important things I think we've seen in just the political um, arena right now, you can throw facts, <laughs> you can throw numbers at people, but if you don't kind of uh, tell stories in the way that make people feel you and where you're coming from um, and, and people's lived experiences, then, then things don't change. I also think though, um, as an organizer, an orientation of working in communities that are impacted, you know, versus, uh, doing a lot of talking to people who aren't impacted or who don't get it. Working like, you know, frontline communities and, um, you know, through gas, through the advocacy work that we do, try to change policy at the local and state level. And I think organizing in communities that are already like being impacted by the extractive, you know, economy, extractive industries, fossil fuel industries, I think like they get it. You come into community as an organizer and people already have like an analysis, you know, um, and, and then you just build on that to like identify the pillars of power, um, you know, over the community, the people who are responsible for um, the pollution in the first place. And I think too, sometimes um, conversations just don't cut it with some of these people. And that's when you kind of have to take, you know, direct action. And, and use that to try to amplify uh, the, the fights on the ground and the, and the, the things that people are going through um, and being impacted by. Yes. Um, because it you know, kind of polarizes the public and forces a conversation. Yes, um, absolutely. I don't know your question, but. Yeah, no, that's right. Like, cause a lot of times we are, so one of the things that we struggle with in a movement is how to tell our stories to decision makers, to the general public, because we, you know, like it or not, like we need to swing elections, we need to swing votes, we need to swing city councils, et cetera, right? So we're telling our stories and uh, the problem is it's not necessarily, as you pointed out, it's not really a communication problem, it's a power problem, right? And so there is a message that we can give 
you know, at a hearing and really talk about like, mm -hmm. hey, there, there is just a basic systemic issue here with the fact that poor people in our community are paying a huge price for the waste that's produced. And honestly, generally, like we consume a lot less, right, than do the one percenters. So, you know, we're, we're consuming less, but bearing a huge burden of that waste. Some people think that it's an explanation problem. Really, what we need to do, like you, uh, organizing those caravans, right? Where even in, uh, in times of COVID, um, one of the amazing things that GASP did, GASP organized these caravans. Tell, tell us more about that and you might um, be able to inspire some folks to do the same thing. Yeah, no doubt. Um, so that was a struggle at first, like figuring out what the, what the next move is because um, the nature of our work is uh, really dependent on like in-person face-to-face gatherings, in-person meetings in the community, that kind of thing. Um, even like actions going going physically to the city council meetings to force a conversation with local, you know, counselors in, in the city of Birmingham about what's going on um, in, in the North Birmingham 35th Avenue um, Superfund site. And so because, you know, COVID hit um, and we were trying to like keep people safe, but also continue um, to fight the good fight was that we uh, started organizing with PANIC, um, with Mr. Charlie Powell. PANIC stands for People Against Neighborhood Industrial Contamination. And so, so we got down with Mr. Powell, you know, um, talked about what to do. And, and um, Michael, Michael Hansen, the executive director of GAS was actually the first one to kind of throw out this idea of doing um, caravans. And we just ran with it. We organized uh, caravans in the community, right? Uh, to continue to uh, let people know, first of all, we're still here, we're still doing the work, we're still, and we want to amplify the issue of this coke plant, right, down the street. That's, that's emitting pollution in a time where people who are um, exposed to air pollution are more likely to die from COVID. So we, we mobilize people uh, to, to participate, um, you know, to hunk their horns, passing um, co the coke plants and stuff, create art, decorate their cars. Um, and then at the end of the caravan, we had a drive-in rally where we um, had different speakers um, and, and also artists, like we incorporated spoken word into um, the, first, the first Right to Breathe caravan. And it, it, it was a hit, a lot of people appreciated it. There's like people on their, on their porch, like waving, you know, um, you know, kind of encouraging us to continue to fight the good fight. We went to Montgomery, you know, because Governor um, Kay Ivey in Alabama, um, you know, has a lot of power to push the, the, the EPA to add the North Birmingham 35th Avenue site to the EPA's national priorities list push forward like more investigation into the pollution that's happened in the community and also um, potentially think through different ways that that um, the community can be remediated. People might be able to be re relocated and, and, and real um, redevelopment solutions um, can come to pass. And so in order to try to push KIV to, to hear, you know, the um, demands of the community, we, we caravaned from Birmingham to Montgomery and um, you know, honked our horns at the state, the state house, um, the Capitol, and we also had a drive-in rally 
And, um, you know, a lot of different uh, coalitions and, and, and organizations threw down with us. Um, you know, we had the uh, PS representatives of the party for um, uh, socialism there. Um, you know, the uh, Dynamite Hill Smithfield Community Land Trust reps from Birmingham there, um, Democratic Socialists of America there and so on and so forth. So um, it was really fun. It was really high energy. Um, and and we're, we're looking to continue to do caravans in that style um, this year. But it was a way for us to continue to take action and, and really just like keep the issue alive um, and connect to the issue of COVID to the, pro the, the EJ problems in the community while also, you know, trying to do it in a safe way where we weren't, you know, organizing super spreader events. Oh yeah, I mean, when I saw that right to breathe, those images, right, I was so inspired because, I mean, I made the connection in my head that, you know, look, you've got like people who are in this country dying of COVID at disproportionate rates, right? It was like, we're paying the price for this pandemic gets down to a chemical warfare kind of level in some places, right? Where people are afraid to turn on their faucets. It is unconscionable to me that, you know, like we haven't woken up yet to the fact that like you were talking about recovery, like we can't have a recovery while people are being poisoned in the way that they are and can't even get basic government services. Right, couldn't before that, but definitely can't now. Um, so anyway, yeah, I, and I, I want to speak to that just really yeah. quick because one of the things that we also started doing um, last year at GASP is we we worked with um, with folks in the community to organize uh, pop up markets um, because you know um, Michael, you know, it, it had folks calling him saying that. We can't. We we don't have food. You know, we 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 uh we are having trouble getting cleaning products because hoarding is happening at grocery stores. And we all know what happened. You know, spring of last year when folks were going going bunkers, uh, buying up everything. North Birmingham only has one grocery store anyway, and folks are already saying that that grocery store is inadequate. In addition to the corner stores and stuff in the community. And so what Gas started doing was we started engaging in mutual aid work. Uh, organizing these pop-up markets with community leaders um, to make sure that to the best of our ability, we were distributing PPE, so face masks, cleaning products, stuff like that, uh, gloves, and making sure that, um, you know, uh, folks, folks uh, at least had access to some kind of uh, fresh produce. And we partner with uh, Jones Valley Teaching Farm in downtown Birmingham in order to do that. Um, we also distributed, um, you know, uh, canned goods. We partnered with different churches that donated um, to that to that effort, um, and so on and so forth. And um, that was a that was a, a way that we could also stay in contact with the folks on the ground, the folks that we work on behalf of our membership. Um, you know, to know what's going on with them, so they know what's going on with us. We distributed information um, in little like face mask bags of like face masks. Uh, COVID information where like testing site, like having lists of testing sites and stuff and just kind of general updates on what gas had going on. And so, you know, it was a lot in one. It was like a mutual aid site. 
It was um, a site for in information distribution. It was a site where neighbors could come to the market and catch up with each other, you know, in a safe way. Uh, we socially distanced, you know, we, we our lineup, we made sure that people were standing six feet apart and, it, and it's grown, it, it's, it's evolved into something um, bigger, you know, we're talking about inc incorporating spoken word at, at the pop-up markets at the very beginning, nice. having different speakers come. Had, we, we had music, you know, it was a, like a fun feel to it. We, we had music going while we had the pop-up markets. And so we continue to do that work. And I just want to say it connects to what you were saying about the failures of the state to, to make sure that people are safe and taken care of because we shouldn't have to be doing that. We shouldn't have to be you know, working to make sure that folks um, have access to produce, you know, where was the city council, you know, where was the mayor, where was the EPA, you know, where was the, the agencies that we pay our tax dollars to, to um, keep us safe, you know, um, but, but no one was showing up. So, so we did what we had to do and we'll, we'll continue to do that in 2021, but I think that connects to what you're saying about you know, people not even being able to, to get their basic needs met. You know, what makes me crazy is when people are talking about, well, you know, we all got to stick together. We're all in the same boat here, right? This we're all in the same boat crap that is so offensive to me. It makes me nuts. Like I got parents right now in Rio and the stories that I'm hearing from South America and they say they're so sanctimonious, right? And they say, well, if people would only like socially distance and take care of themselves, blah, blah, blah. It's like, we're not in the same boat. Like we might be in the same ocean. We're in this messed up ocean. There's sharks everywhere. It's just some people got these yachts and cruise ships, you know, is like, yeah, it's easy to quarantine in place in my mansion in Malibu that's air conditioned, that's, you know, has a nice space. And I got Amazon delivering me anything that I need via drone many times a day. Or I'm in a place where there's simply like, I, I have to work because I have to eat. I can't have food on the table if I don't go outside. But if I go outside, I'm risking my life. Like think about all the essential workers that are out there, you know, doing God's work who are like, yeah, we get recognized in commercials, but when it comes time to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, like, oh no, that's crazy. So- Yeah, I, and, I'll, and I'll say too, um, because there's this thing that's happening where a lot of people have started talking about mutual aid this and mutual aid that. Um, you know, first of all, mutual aid is completely different from charity. Mutual aid is something that builds community power. Mutual aid is something that incorporates a political analysis and political education so that the, the structures of power can be critiqued um, and investigated. Um, and that, I think that's something that, um, you know, we're, we're trying to do more and more at the pop-up markets, um, you know, have these kind of announcements at the top of the markets um, and during the markets to talk about some of the issues in the community. You know, the markets happen right across the street from the Coke plant. So, you know, there was that, that visual of like us doing our grassroots effort to, to, to keep uh, folks safe and, and do our part in the community. And then you have like right behind us, uh, you know, the Coke plants and stuff. Um, and so, yeah, like uh, if, if we're not doing the direct service work 
and, and incorporating some kind of shared analysis and political education of the issues at hand, then the only thing that we're doing is making sure that the state still operates because we're providing services on behalf of uh, our government that aren't even subsidized. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I want to point out too that I talk with a lot of different organizations and they're asking me like, whenever we need to, people are talking about building a base, right? Um, and building a list and, oh, well, I'm just gonna invite people by sending out an email and then they'll come, right? It's like it, building a base and building community is so much deeper than that, you know? It doesn't mean that you have to be out there, but it does help to have, to build relationships with people over long periods of time that are meaningful, right? That are two-way relationships. It's not just like, let me reach out to you when I need something, but it's like, hey, how can we help each other here? Because if we're going to get out of this situation, it's going to take all of us. Hey, Nina, Eve, but in Houston, Texas, I saw that in the agreement, like 385000 plus some dollars went over to the community on behalf of just like the health department from that suit. How do you feel about these plants throwing arbitrary numbers like this will solve your problems? not given like the amount of emergency room visits, the generational harm and all that? Uh, in, in 2019, uh, the US Supreme Court um, and the Jefferson County um, uh, Department of Health, um, which is the Jefferson County is the county where that, that Birmingham is, is inside of, uh, filed a complaint against a drumming company because they were uh, exceeding their limits of, of benzene emissions um, at the plant. And so, so basically, um, you know, there was a complaint filed against them for violating the Clean Air Act, and um, they entered into a consent decree um, with, with the Department of Health um, in order to settle, yeah, basically outline, you know, ways that they're going to um, do better. Ah, you're back. Didn't, um, you know, allow for any kind of community engagement, community input. Um, the money, um, you know, wasn't uh, going to like community for the purposes of public health. Um, and so, you know, we pushed back against that and worked uh, to kind of refine the terms of that settlement, that consent decree. But part of that was that the money that's, that the ABC Coke plant is paying out um, is going to, uh, part of it's going, you know, back to the EPA, um, to the to the treasury, and then part of it is going into a, uh, a fund that is going to be at, you kind of uh, managed by the um, Greater Birmingham Community Foundation, and the purposes of that money kind of be for grants that community members can um, apply for, for the benefits of public health in, in the affected communities, and it's going to be guided by a committee of uh, residents from uh, the different affected communities. That's uh, Tarrant, um, North Birmingham, and the Inglenook neighborhood. So that's three different different folks in the committee. And then, you know, it, it's it, that that's a win, right? Because before that, that was that didn't exist until, you know, gas kind of put some pressure um, on these, these power wielders. Um, and then another part of that 
um, is more transparency in reporting pollution, um, having a, a public database of Title V facilities um, and different you know, actions that are happening with those facilities that will be on the, um, the Jefferson County Department of Health's website um, and so on and so forth. And so to your question, Yvette, um, and, and so, so that's kind of what Gustavo is talking about. It is a win, it's an incremental win, but, but nevertheless, it's still a win. And uh, people deserve more. You know, you can't put a price on, um, on a life. You know what? What value can you put on a plant that's ex that's first of all polluting in a community and exceeding the levels, uh, you know, of emissions that they're supposed to be polluting under the Clean Air Act, right? Um, so that was some that's feedback that we've been getting. So we wanted to make sure when the news about the consent decree and the, the final terms of the settlement were coming out, we wanted to make sure that, you know, before anyone else knew, um, you know, impacted folks knew about it. And so we called folks, um, got their input, uh, you know, talked about it in, in monthly community meetings we have called North Birmingham Community Listening Sessions. And the, the feedback overall was positive in that folks were glad at least something is being done. But there were, there were, you know, some critiques in there, you know, that kind of echo your point, Yvette, about that's it. You know, you, we want to move. We don't want to be here anymore. Uh, we want the, the plants and the EPA to do more. Like, how can you put a price on, on life? Well, you know, we have a hard time putting a price on life. The companies, they have a pretty easy time putting a price on life, honestly. And that's just the sad truth of the matter is that especially also during this quarantine, we have seen companies put a very particular price on all of our lives. And the very basic problem is that the price they put on us is very different from the price they put on themselves. The companies are really having, are gonna have to pay some money for the cleanup. It can't be just taxpayer money uh, through the EPA, right? Like the EPA's money, the government's money, that's your and mine and her and her and her and his money. Um, and it's about time that the companies put back some money in that fund so that the people, you know, footing the bill for the cleanups in Houston, in Alabama and throughout the country that we just need to happen, we wanna make sure that they're paying for it. They haven't paid taxes in some cases in many, many years, it's crazy. So um, we're gonna put out the, uh, the Make Polluters Pay campaign and, and we hope that everybody will join us in that. We're in this together, for, especially for folks who are on this call who are like from impacted communities, especially in the South, like, but you know, across the nation, like we're in this together. So like, let's, let's amplify each other's stories about um, environmental injustice, environmental racism, um, and the failure of the state to, um, to, protect, to protect us and our folks. Thank you again, Nina. I wanna thank Michael Hansen from GASP. I wanna thank all of you who have been doing such incredible work in different parts of the country um, to make this world a better place. And it's a new year. It's a new year. We have, it's like, it's wide open. You know, the possibilities are out there, the opportunities are out there. And so I want to make sure that you can stay in touch with us, chej.org. Please support each other in this time. Mm -hmm.
Thank you for listening to Fighting to Win. To learn more about the Center for Health, Environment, and Justice and the communities we're working with, visit www.chej.org. Subscribe to Fighting to Win wherever you listen to podcasts and stay tuned for new episodes.